Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. For many years, the primary goal of tobacco control policy was to achieve what public health called the tobacco endgame. In pursuit of this objective, tobacco control pushed punitive policies designed to punish tobacco users in a relentless effort to reduce consumer demand. In the end, tobacco consumers embraced their own solution with nicotine vaping products, and it worked. In most Western countries, smoking rates have plunged, and as we learned recently in the United States, teen vaping rates are in sharp decline as well. So is it a job well done for tobacco control? Joining us today to help answer this question is Clive Bates, tobacco control policy expert and former director of Action on Smoking and Health UK. Clive, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks very much, Brent. It's great to be back. Clive, I have a notion, maybe it's a dream, that somewhere out there, tobacco controllers are high-fiving each other, celebrating a job well done. Could that be the case? I don't think that is what they're doing. Uh, it's a control and crisis industry. Um, and without crisis, there is no control. And without control, there is no room for them. Um, so it's it's a it's a movement that has to have a problem. It has to have something to fight. It has to find harm. It has to have alarm. It has to be able to motivate polit politicians and political change. Um, otherwise, it just becomes something like coffee control, which isn't a thing. It, it's you know that no one's interested in that. No one would be interested in them if that's what it became. So. What you see is a relentless pursuit of new forms of harm, new forms of bad actor, new forms of crisis, however trivial or misplaced these things are, because that's what actually sustains that uh, business model. And so I don't think they're ever happy. And if they ever were happy, as in achieve their goals, they would be unhappy because there'd be no future for them. So let's walk through this a bit. There was the tobacco epidemic and the tobacco endgame. Then vaping exploded on the world and smoking rates plunged. So tobacco control turned to hyping the so-called teen vaping epidemic. But as we learned in early November, courtesy of the US FDA and the National Youth Tobacco Survey, youth vaping in the United States dropped another four percentage points from 2022 and now sits at 10%. Does this mean the teen vaping epidemic is over? Well, I mean, it was always the teen vaping epidemic was always a bit of a media and campaigning construct anyway. Um, you know, mo most of the kids who were doing this, it was they were doing it fairly infrequently. They were captured in the statistics, but they were mainly kids who were messing about at parties, blowing big clouds and, you know, just just being kids, just being teenagers, just being adolescents, experimenting with stuff. OK, and I've always thought of this as the teen, teen vaping epidemic breaks into two categories of teenagers. There's the kids for whom it's just messing about. And from a public health point of view, it's trivial. It's experimentation. It's transient. And it'll all be gone by the time they're in the mid 20s. Then there's the other kids who are using vaping more frequently, more regularly, more intensively. But they're the kids who would have otherwise have been smokers. So you've got you've got two class of kids, one for whom the public in public health impact is trivial and then the other for whom the public health impact is beneficial. 
And somehow we've managed to make a moral crisis out of that. And that's because we haven't really understood at the heart of it what teenage risk behaviours are all about and what the inevitability is of young people trying these things. I mean, you know, anyone who knows teenagers knows that they will try stuff. They just do. And trying to eradicate that teenage behaviour has always been an impossible task. And if you tried to do it, you would need ridiculously excessive measures, which we have, you know, some places have taken, and they would still fail anyway because there'd be an illicit market. Now, the moral panic, I think it's hard for some people to remember, only started four years ago with a 27.5% youth, you know, vaping rate. It's dropped over 60% since then in just the four years. I feel like public health is having a difficult time processing the fact that their narrative has lost all foundation. Yeah, I mean, it's a very inconvenient fact. I mean, I mean, I, I, I think what we saw there was a fad, uh, okay? And we were on the upward slope of a fad. And while you're on the upward slope uh, of a fad, nobody really knows whether it's going to end at 27.5 or continue to 50, 56, 75%. So at that point... We had politicians coming in, uh, doing the saviour thing, introducing all these restrictive measures, bans, strength limits, taxes, flavour restrictions and bans and so on. Um, and then the rationale for that all fell away, but the measures are still in place, of course. You know, so and we, we have this. I mean, uh, I was uh, one of the things that I said recently in a presentation was, we in the UK started the snooze ban in Europe. We had a moral panic about skull bandits, which are a form of snooze, coming to the UK and being used by kids. As a result of that, in 1989, they were banned in the UK. In 1992, they were banned across the whole of the European Union, except Sweden when it eventually joined the EU. And as a result, no smokers have been able to access snooze in the European Union legally, uh, except in Sweden, uh, for over 30 years. Now, imagine the difference that would have made. Smoking rates in Sweden, the lowest in the world, 6.5%, uh, is more than twice that in the UK, and it's more than three times, or more than nearly four times that in the European Union. So we have missed out on an enormous opportunity in Europe because of a moral panic about a relatively safe tobacco product, a form of snooze, no real harm associated with it, um, causing a ban and then denying smokers the option for decades in advance because no one ever had the guts to reverse uh, the regulation and admit that they were wrong. And I'm very worried that we're in the same situation with the moral panic that happened in the United States and is now happening in Europe, and Canada, Australia, and everywhere else. The moral panic is actually the real epidemic. I think it is. I, I think it's, but it's it's something it's something they really, really want. It, it creates the locus. It creates their agency. If there isn't a moral panic, if there isn't a righteous cause. There is no reason for them to be on the television. There is no reason for them to be applying for grants. The conferences lose their urgency. The political leaders lose interest. Um, the media becomes bland and boring. Uh, and the whole profession essentially dries up. 
So, I mean, I always, I'm always struck by how gleeful many in tobacco control seem to be when the numbers go bad. You know, it's like, actually, you're in public health. You should be, like, really worried. Uh, you should be, you know, when, when some new, usually fake harm is discovered associated with e-cigarettes, e you'll see certain activists kind of thinking it's great, saying it's like, you know, that's, that's like all their Christmas is coming at once. Um, and yet, the reason they're doing that is not because they're concerned about the effects on the user. They're joyful because of the effect it has on them and the strength and agency it gives them and their ability to campaign for restrictive measures, to do what they've always done, um, you know, which is to campaign for restrictive measures on smoking, vaping and nicotine use. Um, and that, that, I'm afraid, is at the heart of their business model. And the thing that sinks their business model is nicotine without harm. And nicotine without harm is why we're hearing an awful lot more about addiction now, because that's the new way of defining a harm around vaping and pouches. Clive, just today, six weeks past the release of the NYTS 2023 youth vaping data, the FDA found the need to blast out a release restating the drop in e-cigarette use among high school students. Nothing new was added. What do you make of that? One of the organizations that relies on youth vaping epidemic moral panic for its uh, activity is the Food and Drug, um, Food and Drug Administration. Um, they, they in, in the way that they approach um, authorizations of vaping products, their basic position is that these products are harmful to youth unless you can prove otherwise or unless you can prove that um, the, the product that you have is more successful at quitting, you know, helping adults to quit than some other product. But without, without the youth vaping epidemic and without a crisis about youth vaping, FDA's basic intellectual framework for approving these products falls away. Um, and therefore they are, they are more vulnerable in court uh, to the legal challenges that have been brought by, you know, dozens, um, dozens of vaping companies have had their marketing orders, uh, marketing applications denied um, because the scale of the problem is in decline. And it starts to look like FDA was overreacting in the way that it made all its marketing determinations. So I think they they have to stand up and kind of whip up the moral panic a bit, you know, and they, at the moment, they're trying to get uh, political support for their enforcement actions. So now we have, we now we have a, a situation where FDA has basically lost control over the market. I mean, there's, I think, 23 um, approved product, approved vaping products, of which amount to about six sets of products. And those are mostly, um, I, either obsolete or not very popular products. However, the vaping market continues and therefore it's in some kind of uh, grey legal uh, hinterland in, in which it's not clear whether the products are legal or not. And then there's a mix in of products that are pure black market. They've never been anywhere near the FDA. There's products that have applied but not yet had 
uh, determination. There are pro products that have had a determination, but uh, 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 you know, challenging in court and so on. It's a massive mess. And what we're seeing, of course, is that in, into that mess, opportunistic illicit trade is coming in. Uh, US can't seal its borders, far from it, uh, to this sort of trade. So the, the space has been flooded with disposables and products that were either not on the market in 2016 or have never actually had applications made for them. So they're basically losing control. Um, and they've got such a rigid approach to regulation uh, that they're controlling some tiny little corner of the market with massive, massive overkill, huge costs and everything. And then the rest of the market is carrying on in this sort of weird legal semi-darkness uh, that FDA is largely excluded from. And that's why it's trying to talk more about enforcement. But that that's like pushing down a balloon full of water, you know, pushing one place, it'll just bulge somewhere else what we're seeing it's interesting because that you know the news release the blast that they put out so i we get it by email and the actual heading in the email from the us fda this is the title high school e-cigarette use drops while unauthorized products appeal to youth i mean they're showing their hand there aren't they yeah, I, I, it's very hard to know what they thought they think the, the, they're doing with that. They're, they're, they're probably saying, trying to say, look, you know, we're taking credit for the drop, uh, but there's all this extra work to be done uh, because there's a new threat now, which is these, which is these illicit products. And they're probably pitching for more resources for enforcement and a more serious approach to enforcement. But it's hard to know. I mean... I mean, I mean, the leadership in FDA is is kind of a little bit delusional about its role anyway. I mean, they 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 present all these statistics on how well they're doing and how many approvals they've made and so on. But of course, you know, anyone who's prepared to just go out of the building and have a look around what's happening on the streets, even right in the middle of Washington, D.C., can see that the situation is not as they think it is or would wish it to be. Uh, there is a, a huge illicit and semi-legal vaping market out there that is compensating for the utter mess that FDA has made with its regulatory responsibilities. So I'm not blaming anyone for being in that illicit market. I'm blaming FDA for creating it by being a useless regulator that since 2016 has only approved six basically obsolete product lines uh, within a single flavor, all from tobacco manufacturers for, you know, use in the entire U.S. market. We are, I think I showed and saw numbers recently saying we had something like 30,000 products um, in the in the U.K. Nobody's falling down dead as a result of that. No, there's no problems uh, with it. Uh, it's it's a. Uh, a vibrant, diverse market with a lot of uh, very effective small businesses in it, not only giant tobacco companies. I think it's important to mention that in these four years that we've went from this, you know, huge explosion and moral panic, we've had an explosion of disposables that didn't really exist five years ago in any kind of manner. So at the exact same time that, you know, product that you would think that teens would be 
using. I mean, Juul's not even a factor anymore. And we still have collapsing uh, youth vaping rates. We, we, we do. We do. But um, I mean, may, maybe the best way to think of it is there was a spike of excitement uh, uh, about this that, that put levels up to, um, you know, much higher than they would all, all ordinarily be. Uh, and there's still around, I think it's now about 10% of young people are using vaping products um you know uh, more than more than once in the past 30 days that's still quite a lot but when you compare it to cannabis use for example um so if you if you take uh 12th graders in in the united states the level of cannabis past 30 day cannabis use has been over 20% for the last 25 years um you know and again people are Okay, people are worried about it, but there's not a full-scale moral panic about it. Daily use has been a, about 5%. So that's at 12th grade. So numbers are not strictly comparable with the NYTS figures we've been discussing, which cover up all high school kids. But it's still a lot of kids doing it. And I, and I think, you know, you, you've, the, the most revealing study in, in the United States is not the NYTS or the Monitoring the Future. Oh, that's quite good. It's the it's the youth risk behavior surveillance survey in which they look at all the youth risk behaviors you see and builds up a much more a much richer picture of what young people are doing and what they're troubled by, whether it's mental health, suicide ideation, bullying, fighting, illicit drugs, texting while driving driving under the influence, being a passenger with a driver under the influence, smoking, vaping, cannabis, vaping, all of that. And I think that's the kind of picture that we need to understand of uh, American youth and youth everywhere and realise that these behaviours tend to be concentrated in a certain type of individual. They have individual characteristics, ge genetic, their household, their school performance, their, their sense of prospects and their future, and, and their, the environment in which they live. You know, are they in a poor community? Uh, do, you know, what's their, what's their peer group like? Um, and so on. And, and those are the troubled kids. They, they tend to be the troubled kids who, they're the ones who are smoking, vaping seriously, taking illicit drugs, doing other risk behaviours. Um, and we should have more of a caring attitude and focus towards them. Um, and for them, vaping instead of smoking is an advance. It's an improvement. But you never see that category of people discussed by groups like Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids or any of the Bloomberg-funded groups. Um, because they kind of pollute the narrative. They're the bad kids. Um, and what, what they want, what they want is to get political capital from worrying parents of middle class families about their kids. So we tend to see very, you know, nicely polished young people in the campaign for tobacco free ads, not the kids who are, you know, gang affiliated, uh, dropping out of school poor work prospects, uh, other substance use problems, but they are the public health problem. And for them, vaping is harm reduction just as much as it is 
for somebody who's in their 20s, 30s, 40s or 70s. You know, one of the concerns that I've had since day one through this whole process, yes, of course, the smoker that should have switched to vaping and didn't, or those that did switch to vaping, they ended up getting discouraged from it. But it's also the commercial aspect, all those companies and employees and the whole framework of, of industry that's built around vaping and they're shutting down like Canada, like Quebec uh, just went full flavor ban. And I mean, the companies are folding, you know, retailers, distributors, manufacturers in the U.S. Obviously, it's had a horrible impact. And, you know, I think that that deserves uh, a tear. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, there are people who, you know, basically understood this innovation as users, saw what it did and said, wow, I I am the new public health. And they were right. And they, they went out, put their money where their <coughs> commitments are, where their convictions are, set up vape stores, set up vape businesses. And wow, this is a great business um, driven by mission, not necessarily purely driven by profits, hopefully making profits as well, but driven by missions to end smoking, to save lives, to be uh, you know a, a figure in the community that gets people off the cigarettes, helps them and helps share their experience and then makes a livelihood out of it. FDA and these other regulators and legislators have just, you know, basically run them over with a bulldozer. They've just like, yeah, we don't care about you. We don't understand you. All we're listening to is a few shrill voices on the hill uh, in the in the you know in the campaigning organizations in Washington D.C. Um, we're trying to get coverage in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Thank you very much. We don't really care about these grubby Americans out in the middle of nowhere. That's not our concern. We deal with elites. And that's what's so despicable about this. There was something that was working well at grassroots level, um, you know, by the people, for the people. And it was working so well. Uh, and there was a kind of golden era of this before the federal government jumped in with both boots, before the moral panic got involved, before the Bloomberg complex inserted itself into these healthy dynamics and made a mess of everything. And that's what I'm really bitter about. And, and on behalf of those businesses as well, and on behalf of the customers they have who've had those businesses taken away and the customers they will never have but could have had if these basically foolish, clueless regulators and advocates had not got involved. In a previous appearance on our show, you talked briefly about how what the FDA is doing is different than most other places. It, I can't recall exactly what it was, but it was like a forward-stepping grab to regulate as opposed to, you know, seeing what's already on the market and dealing with it with what's there. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the main difference is that the FDA has a product-by-product product authorization regime in, in which it requires the the applicant to submit data and evidence that says that this is appropriate for the protection of public health. And it's very unclear about what that concept actually means in practice. Compared to what? Compared to, uh, you know, what's your assumption uh, about 
what that actually means. Do you have to just be safer than cigarettes? Do you have to be safer than all other e-cigarettes? Do you have to show that you are, you know, do you have to show that you're safer at a population level and so on? So they've created this enormous labyrinthine system, which is incredibly complicated to navigate, costs millions, tens of millions of dollars to get through. Um, and is open to political interference, because if you have very vague rules, it means that the people doing the uh, uh, det regulatory determinations can rig the results to get whatever they want. So you end up with a cigarette being approved, 20, 22nd century, and you end up with the incredibly popular jewel product being denied. Yet there is absolutely no debate about which is the safer product. The other regulatory system, the one we have in Europe and most of the world, is to have a notification regime. Um, and that means that you can put your product on the market, providing you comply with a range of standards and you notify the authorities that the product is on the market. Put Fill in some data into a huge database, um, have that inspected, and then bang, you, you're on the market. So the, the barriers to entry in the rest of the world are very, very much lower. And there are, you know, the, the results of that is that we don't have, uh, you know, just a handful of products that are lawful. Um, there are thousands of products that are lawful. Um, and most of them are pretty good. People buy them. If they don't buy them, then then uh, the companies go, go out of business or the products are withdrawn. And, you know, the consumer is king. Uh, in the United States, the regulator is king and the companies are bending over backwards to produce products that appeal to the regulator rather than the consumer, which is not a good thing from a harm reduction point of view. It's essentially a form of protection of the incumbent cigarette trade, which doesn't face any of those pressures in the United States. And that that's the insane thing. They've got 3000 or so cigarette products on the market. Uh, very loosely regulated, very little, very little to trouble them. Uh, a nice incremental system um, that allows them to do updates. And then they have, you know, the north face of the Iger almost of regulatory barriers to entry uh, before uh, a vaping company can get its product into the same market that the cigarette companies are in. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. We don't have that to the same extent in Europe. We have a very different position. And I think it's much more healthy the way we've done it in Europe. Clive, you made a presentation at the E-Cigarette Summit UK in London last month titled The End of What? It's poignant and per usual brilliant. You started it off with the slide, quote, the end of harm or nicotine. Walk us through that. Yeah, so I mean, this was in a session about the the end game and where it's all heading, uh, and uh, I was, um, yeah. What I thought was, look, there's there is basically two very different philosophies in uh, in tobacco control emerging at the moment, and and one one is the sense that we sh we are approaching the end of all nicotine use. We were, we were kind of heading there with cigarette smoking. Uh, smoking rates were coming down, at least in rich countries. And at some point, you know, bang, we, it would all be gone. It would all, and we would have total victory. The tobacco companies would be in retreat and would dwindle to nothing and be, you know, sold off for their land holdings or whatever. 
Um, there's a the different view, and the one I share is that it's much, much easier to get um, people uh, to quit one particular way of taking nicotine than it is to get them to quit using nicotine altogether. Uh, you know, the demand for nicotine is much more robust and resilient than any particular way of, of taking it. Uh, and therefore, it's a lot easier and more likely to succeed to get people to stop smoking while continuing to use nicotine by switching to smoke-free products than it is to get a lot of smokers to go from using nicotine to becoming abstinence and giving up smoking that way. And that's but that there's some truth in that. It's actually harder to do, it's obviously harder to do both things together. And the more you get into more nicotine-dependent um, groups in society, people who are more you know, perhaps smoking more intensively, the harder that that will be. So I I think, um, uh, so I, th I think from a tactical point of view, from a harm reduction point of view, you shouldn't be trying to end nicotine, you should be trying to end harm. But I try to take that one step further, which is to say, look, even if you'd already got rid of all the smoking, let's let's imagine some kind of smoke-free utopia uh, that's been created by you know the mid-30s, and we've got smoking down to you know a few percentage points, and mainly among older adults who are just you know carrying on smoking, refusing to quit. Basically, the problem has gone. Um, the health problem has gone. There will still be people who wish to use nicotine. There, there will the, the the drug nicotine has an appeal and it has a demand function, and this is what I was trying to say in my in in my talk that if you if you think of if you conceptualise vaping as something that should only be done by adult smokers, you're missing one really really massive point, which is that there is a demand for nicotine among people who have never smoked, um, and I showed a graphic. Uh, that showed that, uh, and I thank Brad Roddy for that one, uh, that showed that in the 18 to 24 year old age group, half, more than half the people who were vaping now did not smoke first before vaping. In other words, they were new vaping users. Now, we don't know whether some of them would have gone on to smoke in the absence of vaping and that's obviously quite an important point but what it does show is that there is a demand for nicotine and there's a demand for nicotine for good reasons people like it it triggers a dopamine response uh, it has sensory pleasures uh, and it has a whole series of behavioral rituals associated with it that people like it has functional benefits People find that it, uh, it ameliorates stress and anxiety, that it uh, helps various aspects of cognitive uh, performance, uh, that it may even be useful for weight control. And then finally, there are probably therapeutic benefits. It may uh, help to ease the symptoms of psychosis, ADHD. Uh, it may have protective effects against inflammatory um, against inflammatory diseases of the brain uh, or other infl other inflammation. So maybe that people are self-medicating. Now, 
these are pretty amazing things, actually, and they, it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect that people would want to use that product if it has those benefits. But there has been a kind of silence, a kind of omerta uh, about that subject, about saying that there are benefits with this from nicotine use in case it rationalizes and encourages smoking. But in a situation where smoking is gone and the main harms are gone, we should be grown up enough to have a sensible discussion about why it is that people like nicotine and use it without talking about a moral panic. I mean, we can, we can all more or less have a discussion about why people like alcohol or why they like caffeine. We don't, you know, we're not, it's not like we're betraying anybody for, for doing that. Why can't we have the same discussion about nicotine? And if we understood the demand for nicotine better, we'd realize that it's going to persist for a very long time, if not indefinitely. And therefore, efforts to find the end of nicotine are more like the same kind of mindset as the war on drugs, trying to eradicate you know, particular types of illicit drug use. Whereas if you're focused on harm, you can get rid of smoking without getting rid of nicotine and you don't have the same challenge of trying to eliminate a psychoactive substance that people like. So that's the point I was trying to make. And this is why I think we have to think beyond harm reduction to imagine the market for nicotine after the problem of smoking has largely been dealt with because we're already in that space with younger people um, in Western countries. Younger people are not really smoking in any big numbers now. So we hear it all the time in the advice, you know, from public health officials that have come on our show that are, you know, disposed to support vaping and so forth. You hear it all the time. You know, if you smoke, you got to quit. If vaping helps, go ahead, do that. If you've never smoked, don't start vaping. And that's always really chided me a little bit. So here we are in the world where that exact thing has happened, where there's more people who have never smoked than have gone into vaping in a large degree. So the question is, is this big green bar a success or a failure? Yeah, well, that's my question. I think it's a success because what I think is that that is a shift of the recreational nicotine market to much safer products. And the people in that green bar will never smoke. You know, for that age cohort, those people age 18 to 24, the smoking rate is way down. It's like a couple of percent. Um, and those people will not be getting sick. They won't be dropping dead in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s from cancer, COPD, cardiovascular disease and if they do it will be at a very very much lower rate so on an age stratified basis the the epidemic of smoking related disease is over and that big green bar there explains why it's over the demand for nicotine has transferred onto much safer products um and therefore the harms associated with smoking will never afflict that generation they will never be smokers. And even the few who are in that age cohort now 
will probably switch to vaping at some point before smoke. they've been smoking long enough for it to harm them. But remember, you can smoke until you're around 40 and avoid nearly all of the excess mortality penalty associated with smoking. So that's 25 years of smoking you can do, and you're not going to die necessarily any younger. Um, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to, it's not going to harm you. It's when you've smoked for decades beyond that. So if that generation largely is transferred to vaping or has given up nicotine completely or to pouches or something, the smoking epidemic is over in that age group. The smoking epidemic is not over in older adults, um, you know, the people who are in their 30s and upwards uh, who are still smoking in quite large numbers and are stuck on cigarettes are generally in poorer communities. And that's where the public health problem is. And that's the point I was really trying to illustrate in this presentation, that the stock of existing adult smokers is the public health problem. The flow of new vapors basically is not a public health problem because they are the people who will never get sick from smoking. And the the presentation, you make the point that that stock of adult smokers is essential to powering the public health industrial complex. Well, yes, yes, well... Except that what they rely on is the flow of youth vapors. You know, the the, pub, the public health problem, you know, I mean, I, I, I worked in tobacco control 97 to 2003 for as director of ASH. And the thing that completely preoccupied us at the time, and, and I think it still does with them, is the burden of cancer, cardiovascular disease, respiratory illness, stroke, all of the awfulness associated with smoking. That problem is concentrated in the body of adults that already smoke. Um, whatever it is, there's about 30 million in the United States and there's about a billion worldwide. Okay, they are the problem. And solving their problem is getting them to quit or getting them to switch to something that doesn't involve smoke. OK, and if the young generation, the flow of people into nicotine use are diverted into vaping, that's a win. OK, it's not the basis for a moral crisis. It's a win. And that's what they don't seem to really understand here. And it's not getting enough airtime in the US media here that vaping is solving the smoking problem one generation at a time, starting with the young people. What's bothered me is that since 2018, for instance, in 2019, plenty of those that were a part of the fad that were teens at the time, they're now 23 and 24. And so if there was an actual problem with a young person picking up a vape and turning into a smoker, we should be seeing that in the numbers. Well, the, the, the gateway theory has been floating over our heads for years. It's now been completely shot out of the sky. The question is, where are the smokers? 
We've had our youth vaping epidemic. There should be, uh, the gateway theory is true, this sh it, that there should be a whole load of newly minted smokers appearing the other side of that gateway. There aren't any. In fact, there are far fewer smokers than we would accept and smoking has gone right down. So it's pretty clear from the data now that vaping is not a gateway in, it's a gateway out. It's a diversion uh, from initiating smoking and it causes smoking cessation in young people who already smoked. Uh, and that that's why it's a positive thing, because the public health issue is always with the young people who would be smoking, would otherwise be smoking. It's not the kids who are just doing silly experimentation stuff. It's the kids who would otherwise have been smoking. Vaping has solved a serious health problem for them. It's an imperative, I think, to hold any epidemiologist's feet to the fire if they still even just hint at Gateway, because clearly that's not the case. The numbers are here. Uh, there's no hidden use. You see it all the time. And, you know, you what I mean, what what happens is that people what people do is they find that, you know, um, vaping at time A increases the likelihood that somebody is smoking at time B, okay? And they go, oh, look, that, and that's an association. They go, ah, therefore the vaping at time A caused the smoking at time B. But the person the, the, the person was already likely to become a smoker. There were already things in their life uh, and about them as individuals and their environment that inclined them to both vaping and smoking. And that's what ex ex explains that relationship. And people have either cluelessly misunderstood that, uh, in which case there shouldn't be in a university and no one should be giving them grants or, you know, doing anything with them, um, or they have maliciously misunderstood it because they're trying to create an anti-vaping argument. I mean, the gateway effect is just a devious way of loading the harms of smoking into vaping. OK, and in fact, uh, where you're talking from, uh, Brent, Health Canada tried to do that in a regulatory impact assessment to show that vaping was harmful. They assumed a massive gateway effect and then attributed the harms of the subsequent smoking to earlier vaping and therefore showed that vaping had to be restricted and flavors had to be banned and all this completely dishonest uh, exercise. And it was very hard to unpick, but that's what they were doing. Clive, so you ask a very big question towards the end of this presentation, and that is, is tobacco control the new big tobacco? So this is uh, this is a subject of a blog that I did recently, and of course it didn't go down very well with some people, to put it mildly. Um, but my I, I I've been a sort of student of the tobacco industry since I started. Well, since way before I started, all the lying and the obfuscation, the whole merchants of doubt era of the the tobacco companies, when they would always put some clever scientists to say, well, you know. Have, have you have you thought about car exhausts or, you know, this is what we see is more lung cancer in urban populations. Maybe it's air pollution or paint or something, you know, and you, you I just remember being infuriated by the industry and all its evasions and doubts and so on. And I, I just started to realize, well, that's exactly what the public health community are doing, you know. 
when you say something, we don't know if this product is safer than smoking. What are you doing? You're create you're creating a doubt. You know, you're you're or you say or you use a phrase like um, tobacco companies claim that um, vaping is safer than smoking, but we don't have any long term data. You know, both of all that all of that is true. But if you say that you're basically creating an impression that the only people who think vaping is safer um, is, is, is tobacco companies. And the, the only way you would know if it was safer is if we had a comprehensive set of long-term data, which we don't and cannot have. And of course, that's not how toxicology works. So we're seeing more and more of that. We're seeing the influence operations that the tobacco companies uh, used to use. We're seeing things like using false machine measurements. You know, tobacco companies perpetrated a scam with light and mild cigarettes by using misleading machine measurements. We're seeing that now with um, measurements of vaping at excessively high temperatures. Um, we're, you know, we're seeing the use of authoritative statements um, from scientists, far more respected scientists than the industry ever used to have, telling us that things are dangerous when they're not. Um, and I, I, I just put all of this together in this blog and, and said, look, you know, you're doing what the tobacco companies used to do. You're using the same tactics that they are. It has the same effect. You're dissuading people from taking a course of action that would benefit them enormously. Um, I, in the case of the tobacco companies, quitting smoking. In the case of the public health community, switching to vaping. And in doing so, you are leaving more people smoking and protecting the cigarette trade. The parallels and the symmetries in what they're doing are really quite shocking. There is one big difference, however, and that is that no one ever really trusted the tobacco companies for obvious reasons. Um, the people doing this, using tobacco industry tactics now, the new big tobacco, come with an enormous endowment of trust. <coughs> Excuse me. And you know, they are bodies like the CDC, um, like American Cancer Society, American Heart Association spreading these like these groups spreading these endless deceptions and equivocations um you know saying saying that there's no difference in the risk between smoking and vaping and putting you know the weight of institutions and academic positions behind it um and i see it as the most outrageous uh, abuse of trust to be honest brent um, and I, I think they'll get their comeuppance eventually. But the question is how many people have to be hurt, misled, deceived, and tricked into continuous smoking and not helping themselves until these guys are, are rumbled and run out of town.